0: Welcome to Harnessing Your Wealth with Billy Peterson. As the founder and CEO of Peterson Wealth Services and a former number one ranked jockey, Billy knows what it takes to succeed. In this podcast, Billy and his team will help equine enthusiasts, business owners, and retirees understand the keys to financial freedom. Saddle up and get ready for a ride you won't soon forget on how you can harness your wealth.
1: Hello there, everyone, and thanks for joining us again today for harnessing your wealth. Today we have a great show scheduled, and of course, Sean Peterson is on with us as as usual. And our guest speaker is Dr. Vince Baker. Vince is a longtime friend of ours and a, and been a client of mine for many years. And you know, I met Vince, I think it was clear back in 1996. He was still a jockey at the time, and Vince has been on the racetrack before Moses was born, I think. <laughs> but he's been around a long time, and he 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 was a good, he's always been a good vet, but he kind of took up a little bit of an interest in what I was doing with my career in retiring from the racetrack and moving into investment management. I invited him to one of my seminars that I was holding. This was back at Los Alamitos Racecourse, and Vince, being a good sport, he attended the the seminar. I was talking a lot about different investment strategies and retirement planning, and I had a couple of giveaways. and One of the giveaways, I think, was a watch. It was a really expensive watch, and you know, somehow Vince wins the watch, and I think that's kind of what helped him decide to be a client of mine after that. So it was fun uh, having Vince. Attend the, attend the event. He always tells people, you know, Billy fell off a horse, hit his head pretty hard. And when he woke up, he thought he was a financial advisor. <laughs> so, you know, I guess that's my claim to fame with him is how I got into this business. But Vince, we're here to talk about you and your career. Enough about me. Why don't you share with our listeners just how you got into the business of uh, veterinarian I- industry and how you became a vet. Go back and give us a kind of a chronological of your history.
2: So I was very fortunate. Um, I was uh, the son of a uh, equine veterinarian. Uh, my father was one of the first in the state of California to work strictly on on horses. So I was born on a horse farm where his first equine hospital was in Southern California. And uh, as a kid, you know, my brothers and sisters and I, we would ride with my father uh, as an ambulatory vet and, and got to go to people's ranches like the the Irvines, like Vicente Yorba from Yorba Linda, the Spanish land grant, um, Dick O'Neill, the uh, Ortega Highway, um, Ronald Reagan up in the uh, Santa Barbara area, the Elmores um, in San Clemente. So some of the big names in real estate or land grants, um, he took care of their horses and, and, um, I saw through his work ethics, uh, how important he was to the industry and as a veterinarian to protect horses and, you know, so spending years and years and years with him, I knew that, uh, my college career would be in veterinary medicine and, uh, my, professional career would be in equine medicine so that started um I graduated from veterinary school in 89 and started practicing equine veterinary medicine at uh, the racetrack at Los Alamitos and then at nights I did uh, ranch work to some of the trainers that owned horse farms or owners etc so I put in my time and many hours and and uh, you know look look forward to doing it every day
1: now vince you were you started out as you mentioned at los alamitos so working primarily for the listeners who aren't familiar with the terminology of the racetracks los alamitos is primarily a quarter horse track or it was it was back in those days at least right
2: yes i mean you know and quarter horses obviously by their you know name and definition they would run anywhere from 220 yards to up You know, up to a quarter of a mile, four hundred and forty yards. So it was uh, from a starting gate to forty miles an hour in less than a couple seconds.
1: Yeah, and when you were working, I guess Los Alamitos primarily night racing, correct? So it was a lot different. Different. Yeah. uh, So day.
2: Yeah. No. I would. We would work. You know, and most of the time get caught up around around lunchtime, around noon or one, and then obviously the treatments for. Racing being the post time uh, starting of the first race was at seven thirty in the evening. Um, Lasix, which is a diuretic to help horses prevent uh, exercise-induced pulmonary hemorrhage, um, would be given to the horses four hours prior to the race. So, you know, usually in the middle of the day, I had a couple hours um, off, if you will, to do either work at the hospital or do you know some outside work.
1: How did you get started in the thoroughbred industry? Because quarter horses, obviously, are a totally different breed. Yeah,
2: and... yeah, it's they're they're all horsemen. Um, it's just a different breed, and so some of the trainers in the early nineties uh, would make the switch. They could see that the future of quarter horse racing in Southern California was not as bright as the thoroughbred industry in in California or the United States um, and by that I mean you know quarter horse racing is still popular in California, but the the states like Texas New Mexico Oklahoma are much stronger now than they were back then so quarter horse racing not was on the decline but just not as as influential um, in California as the thoroughbred. So some of the trainers started to make a change and and would get their clients to purchase thoroughbred racehorses um, at Santa Anita. And and from Los Alamitos to Santa Anita in those days was, you know, it still is only 21, 22 miles, but, um, you know, it, it would only take me 30, 40 minutes to drive up there and look at the horses um, that the previous quarter horse trainers now thoroughbred trainers had and they wanted me to look at them
1: um so a couple of those guys are pretty well known do you want to you share will you mind sharing some of the names that you work with yeah
2: no i mean some of the first ones um were bruce jackson um caesar dominguez um obviously wayne lucas was a quarter horse trainer and then in the middle 80s moved um to thoroughbreds and and uh i was fortunate enough uh, to get a phone call from him one day and you know asked me if if I would make the change completely I could have his his work and um in those days it meant Santa Anita racetrack Hollywood Park racetrack in Los Angeles and then he also had a stable in Kentucky at Churchill Downs and usually one in New York Belmont racetrack so um you know talking with my father he suggests because of the the you know future of horse racing and the future of quarter horse racing versus thoroughbred It would be advantageous for me to make that change. So in uh, 1990, 91 is when uh, I made the switch and it was, I think the summer of 91. So every morning I'd get up and drive to Del Mar, which is in San Diego, do my work there and then drive from San Diego back to Arcadia to Pasadena um, at Santa Anita racetrack because Wayne Lucas had a stable there also. So I put a few miles on every day just to um, keep the profession uh, honest, if you will.
1: Take care of his horses. I bet high demand. uh, That guy is very meticulous. Wayne Lucas is.
2: Yeah. he was, um, you know, when he had his barn at Los Alamitos, it was, uh, you know, very pristine, clean Everything was done by the book. You know, the horses were, you know, fed at 3 a.m. in the morning. Then they'd train and they were fed directly after that and, you know, bathed and you know, fresh water three, four times a day. Um, you know, very meticulous. Um, his barn was beautified. Um, and he was he was a strict uh, horseman. Mm-hmm. I remember
1: when I came out to Los out or to Santa Anita, you know, I moved from my, my tack from New Mexico and I wanted to give a, give it a shot to break into the writer's colony out at Santa Anita and Hollywood park. And those, And of course, some of the best writers in the world, as you know, when you're going up against Eddie De La Huse, Chris McCarran, Lafitte Pinkai, Corey Nakatani can't Disw- so. I mean, yes, I could yeah. go on and on and on. So yeah. the, great race they're riders pre- they're,
2: they're premier jockeys and the, some of the premier horses in the world
1: right right very difficult and i i remember going out and talking to wayne one of the first mornings i was out at the racetrack and he says you know hey i'm always willing to give a young guy who's who's working hard a chance uh, all i'm asking you to do is come out there and earn it so i said yeah Any- anything you want anything you want me to do i'll be I'll be willing to do it so he said all right be here every morning at 5 (laughs) a.m so you know as the rest of the jockeys are sleeping till around eight uh i was out of his barn at 5 a.m and half the time he would say now we don't have anything for you today billy
2: yeah and
1: so i'd walk off and wait there two three hours before the other trainers showed up but occasionally he'd have a horse for me to work and you know i get on the horse and go out the track and he ponied everything of course he yes. go to the track with everything and he was the only trainer i ever worked horses for that was critical of every movement every every detail about what you were doing with the horse during, no, during the work
2: still, still to this day at age 87 he gets on that pony and goes out with the first set every day
1: he's a worker it's yeah. it's amazing i mean People that want to get into this business should uh, follow him around for a while to see what it takes to be successful. But yeah, he's one of the most successful trainers, obviously, of all time. Right. So Vince, what does a typical day for you look like today now that you're very established and you work on some of the best horses in the world?
2: Well, I still, um, I I, uh, made a rule uh, or suggested a rule to the California Horse Racing Board years ago that the track in the morning could not be opened for training unless there was a veterinarian on the ground just in case something happened or you know a horse got loose and got injured or something like that and they thought that was a great idea and said Vince you start this so <laughs> Vince still gets to the track at 4:30 in the morning uh now I only work five <laughs> days a week five or six days a week but yeah. um, I, I still get there and I um I pass that on to all the practices that, you know, and and young veterinarians there at the track that it's very important that if you're going to take a day off, one of your associates or one of your um, other practicing veterinarians on the racetrack, understand that, you know, it's, it's very important for us to be there for the safety of these, these horses. Mm -hmm. Um, So yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm up at three every morning. Um, I get to the racetrack, by 4.30 and, and, you know, you make your rounds if anybody needs, um, you know, anything for their horses, if their horses have a fever, um, you know, that's another thing veterinarians have, have uh, imposed, if you will, on trainers that all of their grooms take their horses' temperatures and, and potentially a groom will take care of four to five race racehorses and, and that they get to know those horses inside and out. And they'll have the temperature taken and recorded uh, on a card outside the stall before, you know, the veterinarians reach the barns. And um, then, you know, there might be, there's typically three breaks at, at Santa Anita, meaning they'll shut the racetrack down, renovate it and open it up in 30 minutes for workers. And so, you know, the first break is at 6 30. Then the next one's at 7 45. And then the following one is at nine o'clock and the track usually closes at 10. So it's open from about four forty-five until 10 every day. So you make the, you know, you make the rounds. If you need to look at horses that are not quite right, you know, you, you auscultate their lungs, pull bloods to uh, send to our lab, which we fortunately have a, a very good lab at Santa Anita and I can get results in, in an hour, hour and a half, um, as to, you know, do they have a, a bacterial infection? Do they have a viral infection? Um, I can do cultures to see what type of virus it is, um, treat them with anti-inflammatories and, and proceed as, you know, the blood work and the, and the lab work would dictate. Um, then you also treat a lot of horses that, um, would uh, be breathing or working out. Um, and typically, you know, if a horse uh, is going to work a hard half mile or a hard five eighths mile, they would get, um, anywhere from 150 to, to 250 milligrams of Lasix, which is a diuretic to help lower their blood pressures and to prevent, um, bleeding from the lungs. Um, mm-hmm. it's, it's a, uh, it's a phenomenon that uh, we don't even realize that humans, the marathon runners, oftentimes um, will bleed a bit in their, in their lungs, the caudal dorsal lung lobes, um, because of the pressures. And, you know, if a human being, his respiration, you know, is typically um, or his heart rate, I'm sorry, um, is typically 60 to 80. You know, they may go out for a run and it's going to go to, you know, 120, 140 beats per minute where a rate a horse um their standing heart rate is 30 to 36 and when they go out and and breeze or do a workout it goes well over 200 220 sometimes you can't even count it it's it's so high so the pressures that take place um in the blood oxygen exchange in the lungs is incredible in in the horse Mm -hmm. and also the horse is the only species um where it's called rouleau formation, the red blood cells have a tendency to stick in low pressure systems, meaning in the lungs where gas exchange take place. So um, that's, you know, one thing that a horse has different than a human, but humans can have pulmonary hemorrhage and um, marathon runners will. So um, <laughs> we do a lot of that work, Lasixes and, and maybe horses that have walked for a few days um, might need a sedation. So they don't, go out there and get over rambunctious and run off and dump the rider or, or hurt themselves so you know there's a lot of that and then horses that you have on antibiotics you'll that are you know twice a day or three times a day you'll start those um, and then you know as the morning progresses other things come up you know you look at horses that have uh, maybe hit themselves have a small laceration or a small bump or um you know have a warm joint so you x-ray have ten you know soft tissue injury so we'll ultrasound um you know so it 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 varies from diagnostic imaging to you know internal medicine to just minor things you know jogging a horse up and down on the road to make sure that they're 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 sound and their legs are in good shape
3: right no, billy somas i want to i want to make sure you heard that about marathon runners because i know you're yeah. a big runner yeah but i think let's... that's what
1: happened to you sean and in in, you know in the marathon that you were trying to run <laughs> you must have bled and... you know uh
2: i was i was a runner myself i, I, I ran uh, cross country and track and and uh i was still a runner up until about six or seven years ago and i was i lived out in somas which was surrounded by um, thousands of acres of orchards you know m- mostly avocados and it was great. I'd run to the top of the hill. To, I'd see the ocean and one day running downhill, you know, you, you don't put as much um, confidence, if you will, coming down the hill because you're just kind of gliding down. And I jammed my knee and the the my right knee blew up and it was there was fluid on it and it was sore. So I thought, well, I'm going to treat this conservatively, ice it, and maybe take some, you know, Advil or Tylenol um, for a few days and and I did that. And after about a month, it didn't come down. So I went in, to uh, an orthopedic guy and he did an MRI. And he said, Well, you know, you've stretched your ACL a little bit and your medial collateral is stretched. And he said, Listen, you're you're 50 years old. What the heck are you running for? That is the worst <laughs> exercise on your knees and ankles. And and you know, he said, Pick up bike riding and and <laughs> So my wife bought me a Peloton, and that's what I do now.
3: There you go. You've got me terrified, Vince, because when <laughs> I go for a run, I think my heart rate, and I'm not kidding, is around 175, 180. So well, you I better, better start you better walking. Get, up, get
2: off the couch and do it a little more often. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah no I mean, kidding. <laughs> the,
1: the problem Sean has is he's trying to burn off the beers from the night before, and it takes quite <laughs> well, a while.
2: <laughs> all good Mormons will do that. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> oh, my
0: excuse me we're almost in the home stretch for the episode but before we cross the finish line i just want you to know that you can contact billy and his team at www.petersonws.com or by visiting the show notes now back to harnessing your wealth
1: hey vince what what are some of the most notable horses that you've ever worked on
2: wow you know when you um asked me if i'd uh... You know, intervene with you and, and converse with you on this podcast. I I thought, gosh, I I, I got to stop and think about this. And and um, so I just I, for the heck of it, I looked up the horses that I was part of their careers. Um, the first Kentucky Derby winner I I worked on was Thunder Gulch. Uh, Wayne Lucas, Michael Tabor owned it, mm-hmm. um, and that was in '94. So I kind of went down through it, and and I've been part of worked on you know been a part of their lives of uh 13 kentucky derby winners uh 12 preakness winners and 13 uh belmont winners so as part of the triple crown Mm -hmm. i've been fortunate enough to work on a group you know pretty good number of winners and and for me um you know, two triple crown winners. I worked on American Pharaoh and he won the triple crown. and was the first horse to win the triple crown in 34 years. So, mm. it, you know, and, and, you know, there's a lot of stories too, that go behind those, um, and, and know that you were a part of it. Um, say American Pharaoh, um, he was as a two-year-old, he was favorite to win the Breeders' Cup two-year-old race, which, um, is the boy's, going a distance, you know, around two turns, meaning a mile and a 16th. Um, and they, you know, the winner of that usually instantaneously becomes the favorite for the triple crown or the, the first race, the Kentucky Derby. So American Pharaoh, his last workout before the Breeders' Cup, he came back sore and um, the trainer was Bob Baffert. And, and um, so obviously I looked at it and there was nothing obvious, no swollen joints, no heat, no, you know, Um, exaggerated soft tissue so I started to do um, what we call nerve blocks so you block a nerve um, proximal to the area intended to block so first I blocked out the foot and there was no change then I blocked out the ankle down there was no change and then I did a lateral pulmonary nerve block which is specific for the high suspensory on a horse and the horse went sound so I knew the location but I didn't know what was wrong because there was no heat or swelling. So I, uh, ultrasounded it and at the, the suspensory ligament is, um, attaches or starts just below the knee on the back of the cannon bone goes down to the proximal sesamoids attaches there and then goes distally and and attaches in the pastern, And it is known as the stay apparatus, if you will, of the fetlock. Um, So I ultrasounded the high suspensory, and at at the attachment site, there was only a 30% enlargement. um, No torn or ruptured fibers. So it seemed to me that it was not enough to cause this, this class of lameness that we were witnessing. So I knew that if we stopped now, the horse would have a career. And so I told the trainer and the owner, and I said, look, I can get the horse sound by you know, giving it uh, some anti-inflammatories and, and maybe even injecting some corticosteroids there, but I cannot promise you that it'll have a future. And I, you know, so I, I pushed and prodded and, you know, it didn't take much to convince him, well, look, we'll skip the Breeders' Cup, which, you know, is a big race. It's a grade one and, and it's worth a million and a half dollars to the winner. So um, we walked the horse for 60 days, um, I did some follow-up imaging with the ultrasound and a limited nuke scan and everything looked good. And the horse went back into training and sure enough, he went on to win the, the triple crown. So, mm-hmm. you know, you, you feel like, you know, I, did, I wasn't the horse, I wasn't the trainer, I wasn't the jockey, but I put in my two cents and my interest and my knowledge and used the facilities that were available to me Um, and the professionals around me and then we got that horse to where he never had an issue again in his life
3: that's awesome
2: those kind of things you know you know i don't take credit for that horse winning the triple crown but i was part of that team and that that kind of makes you feel good and that's what i think drives all of us no but you know (laughs) you you know like for you I'm, i'm sure like when the stock market was raging um you know a year and a half two years ago and you you were you know We'd speak from time to time. I would, I would not acknowledge all the paperwork that you send to me, but we'd speak from time to time and you'd give me an update as, Hey, you're, you're doing great. And, and that's got to make you feel good. That's, you know, that's what you're there for. And, and I have a reason to be on this earth too. And and I feel like it's to, to protect these horses, to give them, you know, a career it's, it's not win a race. It's give this individual or all these horses a career. And, and that—that's that, what life, you know, life to me is about.
3: Yeah, that's good. You know, we were out at um, the AQHA convention over the weekend, Vince, and listened to a lot of the the challenges, you know, rules and regulations that are going on in the industry. But what would you say are some of the main challenges that are facing your profession out there in the vet world?
2: You know, it's it's a it's a tragedy actually. Right now, um, I'm I was not aware of how hard the veterinary profession, both small animal and equine, um, small animal, you will see every every day I get at least one or two emails from either the American Veterinary Medical Association or the California or, you know, some of these um, institutions, uh, even from the University of California, Davis, um, you know, promoting veterinary medicine and, and sending out emails where you can get mental health you know strategies sent to you and I thought god why I mean and and apparently the veterinary profession has been hit the small animal profession has been hit so hard by these large corporate buyouts so Mm -hmm. I'm not going to name any names but they're large large corporations that are purchasing you know a clinic that's owned by one or two people and that maybe there's Maybe there's only two or three veterinarians working there, or maybe there's 50, but they buy them out. They promise them either stock or a buyout after five years. And, but they set up limitations. You have to see a new patient every 15 minutes. You cannot use this procedure or that procedure. You have to follow our guidelines. And I've spoke to many small animal veterinarians that are that have quit or leaving the profession because of the stresses. You know, I mean, obviously, if you're a human doctor or or a veterinarian, you know, it's it's all about the patient, and you do what you have to do. And you know, as my father told me, you know, before I was even a veterinarian, and then after I was, he said, Vince, you're not going to know everything. And now it is so specialized, um, it's an impossibility. But he told me, know somebody that is proficient in every field, whether it's internal medicine, whether it's diagnostic imaging, whether it's surgery, whether, you know, so get to know. So if you think there's a problem here, that your diagnostics are 100 percent sure, you know, get a referral. Um, and you're not allowed to do that, apparently, in in a lot of these big corporate owned clinics. And it's it's. It's just ruining these poor people that have put their heart and soul into, you know, small animals or that. And, you know, in the equine profession, um, it's uh, it's the hours, you know. Um, even now, I would say I probably put in, oh, 60 to 70 hours a week, um, which I know doesn't sound like a lot, but um, I'm 64 years old <laughs> and back, you know, back in the. My heyday. I worked seven days a week for the first twenty some years, and um, you know, after after I'd leave the racetrack at five in the afternoon, I'd go to to ranches uh, owned by Blaine Swanerville, Lakeview Thoroughbred Farm, Jen's List Farm. I'd do that work at night, and I wouldn't get home till midnight one, and right back at it again the next day. So, um, the hours in large animal uh, and these new rules and regulations in racing are killing large animal veterinarians or equine veterinarians and and these corporate buyouts are you know destroying small animal medicine and i think it's it's the individuals feel like they can't do their job anymore and they're taking it personally and and the mental fatigue that is is thrown on you know people we can all go out there for a run and you know when you're tired you're tired but mental fatigue is so much more you know, found on, on uh, these, you know, veterinarians nowadays that uh, the profession is hurting. And, and I've spoke, um, I have an internship program and I set it up with the American Association of Equine Practitioners, um, which is the largest group of veterinarians that have worked strictly on horses. And I said, I get first pick because I pay the best in the United States um, for an intern. And Grand Southern California is not a cheap place to live, but I pay them enough to where they can, you know, rent a house, have a great job, get paid, save money, etc. And I lost uh, my intern um, because of a circumstance that is occurring in uh, a political situation in the state of California. And so I called back to the AAP, said, I, I need another intern. And he's, uh, the the president told me, Vince, I've got over 300 applications on my desk for equine vets. And last year, University of California at Davis, the veterinary school, only had one individual interested in doing veterinary medicine, it's more specifically equine. So wow. it's, it, it's tough.
1: Sorry for the interruption, everyone. Just wanted to make a quick announcement that we will be holding our annual financial literacy boot camp on March 21st from 8 a.m. to 2 p.m. right here at Weber State University. So if you live close by and you'd like to attend or send your son or daughter, niece or nephew, reach out to us. We can give you the details. You need to RSVP right away. Now let's get back to the show. And some of the challenges that I hear around the conferences that I attend and even speaking to other veterinarians who are clients or horse trainers who are clients, even owners are, you know, regulations that are coming down from obviously different governmental agencies that want to uh, obviously avoid or eliminate uh, unsoundness issues with horses right. and you know well, and, of course and, the catastrophic I loss under, but yeah,
2: I understand sometimes there's other
1: people that don't know what they're talking about of course they're the ones writing the rules
2: right obviously you know um but maybe some of your listeners don't realize the you know i see my patients every single day whether they're you know temperatures are normal they're eating well their digestive tract is well they're training well i see them every single day um so I know my client's horses. I know them very well. And I mean, I can go into a stall with a horse and look at them in the eye and, and go, you know, this doesn't look right. You know, they don't have that bright, glistening eyeball that I'm used to or that comes with a, an individual that is healthy. Um, but most of the people in these regulatory political positions in, in the states um, they're not sure which end of a horse eats hay. So (laughs) no, in all sincerity. And so, you know, I mean, they don't understand that there's not more people on this planet that love animals more than veterinarians, you know, and, and we're here for them. And we, you know, I I tell people, you know, it's kind of sad, but I'll admit to it now that, you know, where was I when my wife went into labor, I was at Del Mar and, ultrasounded the horse and then drove up to met her at the hospital you know where was I the day my father passed away where was I the day my mother passed away where was I the day my older brother passed away I was at the racetrack working you know that mm-hmm. it's um you know and and those kind of things people don't understand that are in political positions you know politics does not have a role in veterinary medicine we right. as doctors do
1: all right and I, I think you would concur that horses are some of the most pampered individuals on the planet i always make the joke hey, if i'm going to die and come back as something else just make yeah. me a thoroughbred stallion a <laughs> okay, good one yeah.
2: well yeah I mean, <laughs> you wouldn't be very good at that okay. come on man you know i'd be right I, up there. I, I i completely concur it's it's um and and unfortunately you know it's like I don't understand what you do every day. And, and, you know, I always give you heck about, uh, did you fall asleep on the couch or anything like, you know, when your girls answer the phone, I say, they say Oh, Billy's in a meeting. I said, you mean he's out watching his kids play, you know, baseball, (laughs) you know, and you know, I don't know. And I don't pretend to know your schedule and your business, but your success is obviously, um, due to your responsible lifestyle. Yeah.
1: Well, I think it, it echoes in every aspect, every career, every industry. The people that you see that are successful, by and large, for the most part, and there are exceptions, but most most of them that stay successful have earned it, you know, and, and they had to put in the hours to get there. Exactly. But,
2: no, exactly.
1: And so, I, I, it's one of the reasons I wanted to have you on, Vince, is just knowing how well respected you are. I mean, not only in the tracks that you serve and the people that you've worked for, horses you worked on. I mean, seriously, all over the world. I know you've traveled to England, and I mean, you've probably worked on horses for sheiks and uh, very high-profile people.
2: Been to Dubai, been to Saudi Arabia, you know, been to South America, been to England, France. Um, You know, I've been very fortunate.
1: Mm -hmm. Why do you think you've been so successful? I mean, other than the hard work, is it? Is it? I mean, have you have you been able to? parlay these relationships and and of course doing the right thing or do you, do you have anything that's, that you...
2: that's the key i mean what my father told me is um i think the key to my success um you know be a hard worker be concerned and circle you know circle yourself with the pros in all aspects you know so so you know wayne McElraith, the head of surgery and the father of arthroscopic surgery had just retired from, um, you know, sent out an email last week to me that he was going to retire. Um, but for 40, 44, or 45 years, he's come to my dad's hospital and then my hospital at least um, twice a month or two weekends a month for 44 years. Mm. And that's, that's, um, you know, the father of arthroscopic surgery. Every book on arthroscopic surgery is written by him. courses course, is given throughout the United States, throughout the world by him. Um, people that are that are um, involved in MRIs, I have three different groups. If it's a fetlock, I send it to a, a radiologist in Florida. If it's a foot, I send it to an, a radiologist um, in England. And if it's anything else, I send it, um, there's an imaging department at University of California, Davis. So, you know, don't be ignorant and you know engross engross yourself in who's the best in the industry and make it your policy to get them to concur with your potential diagnosis and maybe what's the next step forward or or an internal medicine specialist if you have a sick animal that just isn't responding to the normal treatments you know people trainers look like the first time i brought an internal medicine specialist into his barn you know people People thought, Vince, what are you doing? You're 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 acknowledging to Wayne Lucas that you don't know what's going on. And I didn't take it that way. I took it as I'm bringing in a specialist because I care about that animal more than anybody else. And Wayne Lucas thanked me the next day. He said, Vince, that was impressive, and I want to thank you for caring that much and knowing that person. You know, so that's true in in every walk of life.
3: Yep. And, and, you and got to have a good team around you for sure. Yeah,
2: I think my father instilled that in me um, from the very beginning. You know, um, I remember the first ultrasound I wanted to buy. And he said, you don't know that horse has got a bowed tendon. you got to go back to school. And then we both, <laughs> la- both laughed about it and said, well, yeah, but that tendon can be swollen and there's no damage. It's just acute inflammation. Or there can be damage and we'll know how much time to give it off and we'll know along that time how it's healing, you know, and, and when it's healed completely and how to move forward with the training process. So, Mm -hmm. you know, those were things that he threw at me before all this fancy diagnostics were available. Nice. So yeah, that's, that's that's what makes it
3: good. Final question here, Vince, you know, the title of the podcast is harnessing your wealth. So we're going to ask, how have you been able to harness your wealth over the years? You tell me, and you better be good. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I thought uh, you might you know, throw like, that back like, at us. <laughs> I,
2: I uh, you knew that, yeah. um, and that was another thing. I remember when I graduated, my dad, um, my dad's best friend was a an MD and and a very successful surgeon at St. Joseph's uh, in Orange County, and he said, talk with Dr. Heps and see how what he suggests and my father bought a lot of real estate and and was successful in his job and in you know investing in real estate um and this dr hep said you need to find yourself an an investment advisor and i thought i know i know a guy he's not very smart he was a jockey and fell off a lot (laughs) but
3: um
2: it's
1: i never fell off it it didn't (laughs) just fall off okay there are certain things that happen in a race and you go off
3: Okay. Right. It was the horse's yeah. fault.
2: Yeah, exactly. Um, <laughs> so that's when, you know, I, I'd met you at the track several times, even at Los Alamitos. And, um, you know, you were discussing with me and, and it's funny because I have these these discussions with these young veterinarians now at the racetrack. I say, look, you know, pay off your student loans, but you know, if your percentage on your student loans are, you know, less than 5%, use half of that money and invest it because you're going to make more on your investments. And, and I've given your number out to a million people. Um, and I, you know, I, I obviously in your firm and your, your sibling or not siblings, but your, your partners in your firm, you know, I have faith in them. Um, I joke around and I give you guys a lot of flack, but, um, um, obviously I wouldn't be where I am today without you guys. And, um, I appreciate that deeply. And, and, I hate to pull all my money out of there, but you better do a good job this year too. It's important to um, people because, you know, you, you start making a good living and you think, oh, well, I'm going to buy a house, which is, you know, you got to do that. That's the first investment you make them, um, but you've got to think, you know, I'm not going to be able to do this forever. Um, and, you know, the SEP IRAs that you, you know, would increase every year. Um, the 531s that you, had me start when Carol was pregnant with Aubrey, Um, you know, she's, she's a junior in in college and I haven't had to take a penny out of my pocket to pay for her college. And she's going to go on to do, you know, postgraduate work and and that's all going to be taken care of because of the, the, the steps you made me take or us, my wife and I take to invest in, in her future. Um, And, you know, people, you don't learn about that kind of stuff in school. Um, In fact, I think schools are getting less and less, uh, educating as far mm. as business wise goes and and so where do you find that information out you know that's that's something you guys are probably thinking too how do we get this information out to people that you know sure if you make a make a dollar a day you know and you're going to spend 75 cents 25 cents has got to go someplace for your future
1: yeah yep well thanks for the comments Ben. so we appreciate it i mean i've worked with your family for a long time and got to know each and every one of them. And I know it helped things transition after your father died and your mother died. And so, you know, there's a complicated concepts, not only investing and in preparing for your future, but transitioning wealth from one generation to the next. And there's a lot of tricky things that go into that. And, yeah. uh, you know, all of it requires some expertise. And I've tried to learn along the way. i worked with a lot of high net worth people is similar sounding to what you've done in your career work with a lot of people who have money and wealth and they trust you to do the right job. And I've been fortunate every day to work with people like you and your family and others throughout the country. And most of them, you know, have wealth and they love an industry like horse racing. And that's why I like the people involved in the industry. They're just good down to earth people. And we, we have a good rapport, good conversations, have some things in common. Um, so appreciate what you've done and you've been a longstanding client. heck I I guess I, you were you guys are some of my earliest clients, uh, if you look yeah, back think, in those days.
2: I think I was one of the first five or ten of your clients and and um, yeah, and, yeah, you know we, we've been through a lot and and uh, appreciate you guys tremendously.
1: Well, and I, I will say, you know, I've worked at a lot of different brokerage firms. Small, Payne Weber, Smith Barney, Vince is, uh, of course, m- made Ma- the moves <laughs> every time he's <laughs> followed me a, a, around. And, and I've appreciated that. He used to send notes in with his checks for contribution into his retirement plan. And so you don't know the amount of flack I had to take from all your funny little wisecracks, Vince. The, uh,
2: they were, they were educational. Oh, they yeah, were. they were
1: very educational when you have the operating staff, operational staff at a firm, a very large firm with about a hundred people and they come back to your office and they're all giggling and snickering and, and saying, what's up? And what would you like us to do with this check from a Dr. Vince Baker? Uh, I said, well, just put it in his account. What do you want? Uh, Okay. what do you want us to do about this note that he left? Because it says it's for your penal enlargement surgery. (laughs) So still still wisecrack like that i had to put up with and you know dealing with for what 30 years Vince, 25 years at
2: least 30 yeah well and yeah. look it's, it's made you a better person oh it's, it's,
1: you know and i said hey i don't want that check i don't need that check <laughs> send it back to vince obviously he's having some own personal problems of his own but anyhow i just wanted to share some stories and we've had a lot of good times and and if our listeners if you ever get out the California and want to go see the racetrack, uh, that'd be a great place to visit. And you go to the backside, check out what's going on. There's so much work behind the scenes that no one really knows about. And, no, it's, and, it's, it's,
2: it's impressive the way uh, industry like horse racing, um, how it moves from day to day. It's, it's, you know, we take it for granted because you and I have been around it our whole lives, but um, it's, it's, you stop and look and, and, and think, you know, the hundreds and hundreds of people, Involved in it, you know, anywhere from people growing the feed out in the field, the alfalfa or the Timothy or the straw or the oats or the grain um, to people making the saddles, making, you know, the jockeys equipment to, you know, to the veterinary supplies and, and the, you know, the advanced-
1: shavings and the bedding and, and the, all of the supplements. Incredible. and Oh, yeah, there's so much going on. So it's a wonderful industry. I really enjoyed being a part of it and I want to thank you Vince for sharing all your thoughts and wisdom here and and appreciate what you've said today. I want to also tell our listeners that coming up on our next podcast we are going to have a man of a lot of different hats joining us who's been involved in oh so many things from auctioneering to running the country's largest horse auction company to ins- the insurance industry and and many other hats that he's worn throughout his career so you'll want to stay tuned for that his name is jeff tebow we're going to have him on next so until next time appreciate everyone listening drop us an email or visit our website if you want to learn more about what's going on you can go to petersonws.com for the website and we'll be happy to answer any questions that you may have thanks for
0: joining us Thank you for listening to Harnessing Your Wealth with Billy Peterson. Before we declare the race official, please click the follow button so you can be notified when new episodes become available. For more information about today's show, please check out the show notes. Visit our website at www.petersonws.com or give us a call at 801-475-4002. Once again, thank you for listening.